everybody. How you doing? And welcome to episode number 197 of the John Riley Project. You know, this is a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So how you doing? It's it's Monday, February 1st. Can you believe it? Um, February 1st, we're starting a new month. I mean, we just got over 2020, and the next thing you know, we've turned the calendar again into February. Um, hey, today we're going to have some interesting conversation. We're going to we're going to definitely catch up on the one topic I didn't get to on Friday's podcast, which was a little bit of a marketing education piece about lead generation strategies, lead generation infrastructure to help your business grow. But before we get to that, I really want to kick it off talking about um, the Joe Biden plan for the economic stimulus. I know that's being discussed right now. And Biden and the Republicans are going back and forth trying to figure out how much more bailouts, how many more new programs are going to be required to rescue the economy and keep people employed, keep people um, with cash in their pockets so they can live and and have a house, a roof over their heads. So we're going to go through some of the differences between the two proposals. I think they're pretty interesting. There's a lot of jumping off points to talk about a lot of different topics. So um, you know, we are live streaming as we always do um, on Facebook and on YouTube. So I welcome your thoughts, questions, comments. Just type them in uh, into the comment section on Facebook or YouTube. I'll see them here and I'll read your comments on the air. We'll have a discussion. You know, last week, someone um, in our live stream, because we were talking about the the Friday episode, we were talking about the whole GameStop and Robin Hood and Wall Street bets. Someone shared our YouTube live stream. I think it was on the Wall Street bets Reddit site, and we just had a, a huge surge of of viewers, and and it was it was great. But we had all kinds of crazy commentary. Um, some people I had to actually block, uh, but that's just sort of the fun and the wild wild west nature of doing a live stream. You're not sure what you're going to get as you go through it. So that makes it kind of fun. Um, but yeah, we're going to we're going to definitely get into this whole Biden GOP stimulus thing. We're going to there's a lot of little you know off ramps we're going to take on this. We'll talk about minimum wage, which I know is a hot topic for a lot of people. We'll get into that a bit too. Um, but you know, hey, just um, a reminder out there if one way you could really help us is to to like our episodes, give us a thumbs up, um, share our our episodes on Facebook, on on um, any of the other social media platforms. If you could share it, that'd be great. And if you think we deserve it, you know, go on to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and and leave a review. That's very helpful. Uh, a five star review if, if you think we deserve it and that would be most helpful so it's um yeah it's monday uh just had the weekend on how was your weekend i know um some of our frequent podcast uh, listeners and viewers pete neald i know he was watching daytona that was on over the weekend you know i got i, I enjoy watching the tory pines golf course the farmers open here in san diego it's kind of a chamber of commerce right you know at least on saturday and sunday it was they were dealing with crazy weather thursday friday but Back when I was in college at UCSD, my fraternity actually did fundraisers, um, and we got jobs working that tournament. We would drive golf carts all golf carts all around the golf course, picking up the trash. And that was back in the mid '80s, and before you know, golf wasn't nearly as big then as it is now. And obviously, back when they had a huge live crowd, and so it was a fun episode, uh, a fun opportunity to be out there on that course. I've golfed on Torrey Pines probably about five times. Times or so, all back when I was in my twenties. And man, what just a gorgeous course! 
I love seeing it on TV, and it's just beautiful. So I got to watch that. And um, what else? A uh, couple of interesting things. Fernando Tatis is going to be on the uh, front cover of MLB The Show, which is great. Little San Diego love right there for the Padres. I love seeing that. So baseball is going to get started soon. We're looking forward to the new the new season. And um, got in some more of uh, my streaming. I've been watching Outlander, the new episode season season four just came out. So I was able to watch some of that and I've been catching up on some of these Vikings episodes that I never quite finished some time ago. So, um, you know, with this whole COVID crisis, man, I'll tell you what, I don't go out on adventures nearly as much and it's a little bit of groundhog day, but I try to make it worthwhile. I do these podcasts with you, work on my business, um, get in a little bit of enjoyable, uh, you know, entertainment time. I've been exercising mostly here at home, uh, doing a lot of new exercises. So I'm really feeling excited about that. So hope your February is off to a great start. And now let's get into um, this this Biden and the GOP and what they're up to. So they're obviously, you know, we're in an economic crisis. I mean, if, if you're fortunate to be employed, um, if you are um, fortunate to have minimal disruption, you may be oblivious to the fact that our economy has like literally been blown up in, in, in many segments um, uh, of, of the economy here in San Diego, California, and other parts of the country. And there are people that are legitimately struggling, right? Struggling to pay their rent, struggling to put food on the table and government is scrambling and people are demanding government to help them. And, and so we're going to kind of go through this. And the, the first place that I think we can start with here is the stimulus payments. And, you know, this is all goes to that $2,000 check. You know, if you were a voter in Georgia, this is what the the uh, the campaign ads were promising you. You know, if you voted for Ossoff or for what was the other guy? Was his name Warlock? Um, if you voted for them, they're going to give you $2,000. Right. And sure enough, Biden is is planning to follow through on that. There was already a $600 stimulus payment that came out in December. Um, now, Biden wants to put an additional $1,400 and have a second stimulus check of $1,400 to get everyone right-sized up to $200 or $2,000. Of course, it only it depends on how much you earn. So depending on, I think it's like 70, is it $75,000 per year? Um you won't get the full amount. It then starts going down a little bit after seventy five thousand, and then quickly you can um, suddenly be ineligible for payment. So it's not for everybody. It's mostly for middle income and lower income folks. Um, and then the, the the Republicans, you know, obviously the the media loves to frame this as good versus evil, and you know the Democrats are the good guys, the Republicans are the bad guys, and but you know the Republicans are offering. Um, a similar amount, well, not the full amount, but I think it's going to be, what does it say here? Yeah, $1,000. Rather than an additional 1400 that Biden is pro- pro- proposing, the Republicans are proposing $1,000 and a little bit lo- lower of a cap. But in both cases, they both these parties want to hand out money. And you know, they really try to position these two parties as night and day, as total opposites of each other, but they're really not. I mean, they're they're just varying degrees 
of the same. Um, in many cases, they're two sides of the same coin. They're, they're not different the, between these two parties on a lot of these. When, once you get beyond all the crazy rhetoric and the rioters and, and, and all the nonsense, and you just kind of look at the hardcore policies offered by these two parties, they're really differences of degree, not really differences of kind, not really a fundamental difference. So here, yeah, Biden wants to give everyone 1400. The Republicans want to give everyone a thousand, you know, within the scope of who qualifies. Um, Not that big of a difference, really. Um, And then let's go on to unemployment benefits. Again, both sides are proposing to continue this. Now, this is the $300 a week check that a lot of folks that have been out of work have been getting. This is unemployment at the federal level. This doesn't count a lot of the other unemployment that's available through the state and and other sources. So the Republicans are proposing to continue the $300 per week unemployment check that people are getting now and continuing it through June 30th. And the Democrats, on the other hand, want to increase it to $400 a week, go from $300 to $400 a week. And they want to continue that until the end of the year is my understanding. So um, a little, quite a bit of a difference there, you know, because when you add it up every week over the course of the year, that adds up to quite a bit of cash. But it's interesting. I, I did the math on this and $400 a week. And my understanding is that this is tax-free money. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. It might be taxable. But $400 a week, now I'm just going to project this out as though we were computing what an annual salary would be or what an hourly wage this works out to be. But $400 a week times 52 weeks a year, this is assuming you got it for a full year, that's $20,800 a year in unemployment uh, benefits from the federal government. And then if you were to kind of assume that it was a real job and then the job actually deducted taxes, and granted, if you're earning 20 grand a year, you're not really paying federal or state taxes, but you are paying payroll taxes. And so I did the math. I kind of assumed, okay, let's say 15% roughly is going to be withdrawn from your check for taxes, for payroll taxes, maybe a couple of other miscellaneous taxes, just to make the math easy. Um, that would project backwards out to $24,470 of a annual wage that's available if the federal government makes us $400 a week. That's incredible. Um, now, I just remember when I got my first job out of college, this was back in 1987. That's about what I earned a year. I think I was making 24 grand a year, or maybe it was 24,500 a year when I got out of my job uh, out of college. And now people are getting it essentially for free. Now, granted, there's, you know, we have an economic crisis and things are pretty crazy, but it's, it's interesting to see the sense of scale. Uh, Pat Johnson uh, chiming in on the podcast. He says, um, $150,000 for married, $75,000 for single. I think, yeah, I think that is the cap. So if you make $75,000 or less as a single person, you'll qualify for this uh, stimulus payment. But if you make over that, you won't qualify. Or maybe there's a, a sliding scale where it decreases a little bit. I'm not sure. And if you're married, 150000 is the cap. Pat from Norway. So, Pat, are you up in Norway right now? Really? Um, 
I've been watching that show Vikings, man, and it's a lot of it's in Norway. Uh, what a beautiful land that is. Um, just really enjoying that show. Um, I've never been up to Scandinavia. Hope you're really enjoying it out there. Um, saw your latest photo on Facebook, letting that COVID hair grow out. One of my friends up in San Francisco is doing, doing the same thing. So I hope you're enjoying yourself on your latest adventure, Pat. Um, but yeah, so again, is there a big difference? I mean, Republicans are, want to continue the $300 a week. The Democrats want to increase it to 400 a week. So not really a difference of kind, more a difference of degree. I mean, really, both of these parties are socialist fundamentally. The Republicans keep saying that they, they oppose socialism. But that's not true. I mean, they they want to have redistribution. In some cases, they want the government having ownership of certain portions of the economy. Um, but they talk a game like they're not really supportive of socialist programs. But they are just a different degree than the Democrats. And Pat said, yes, I, well, I assume, Pat, you're enjoying Norway. And that's what the yes is for. So terrific. Um, wow. So the John Riley Project, making it halfway around the globe up in Scandinavia. So right on. We're uh we're, um, what do they say? Uh, what was that ZZ Top song? Um, we're bad. We're nationwide. So maybe, man, we're, we're so bad. We're worldwide here on the John Riley Project. Um, okay, what else are they doing? They're talking about vaccines um, and both plans. They both want to offer $160 billion to fight the virus. Now, to me, this makes sense. Um, I think in many ways you have to think, I mean, I like to think of the virus as like a, an invader, right? It's almost like a foreign invader and we have to have, to have a national defense and, and defense against this virus to me makes a great deal of sense. But it's interesting that both parties are proposing the same amount, $160 billion. And so um, Biden wants to put $20 billion into a national vaccination program and $50 billion into testing. Now, this is where Trump really dropped the ball. They should have been doing testing in the very, very beginning, back in February and March. But not only was there terrible leadership and they weren't organized to test, but there were testing kits that were made available to Americans and the federal government prevented them from being imported into the United States because Trump wanted to create his own made in America testing kits. And imagine if the government in the very beginning had tested people, had some contact tracing and quarantining as appropriate. This virus would be dramatically under control. But right now it's out of control. In fact, I've been hearing now that there, you know, these other strains, there's the South African strain and the English strain. And I just heard today there's a Southern California strain to this new virus. So it's just going to keep getting worse. I think they're projecting more spikes of cases and uh, more spikes of hospitalizations and un unfortunately, probably more spikes of death. And this could have been prevented. I mean, we couldn't have eliminated it, but it could have been so dramatically controlled had we had proper leadership in the very beginning, but we never did. And so that's why now we're dealing with this humongous COVID relief package. This is a another wave of relief packages um, to try to 
Band-Aid or, or try to mend the economy. And it's just like you're the little kid at the, uh, at the dikes in, in, in Amsterdam trying to plug the holes. Um, it's a game of whack-a-mole, and it's hard to solve all this. But it could have been solved. So anyways, Biden wants to put $50 billion to into testing. He wants to hire 100,000 public health workers, nearly tripling the community health workforce. So Wow. Um, that's something. That's a lot of people that he wants to employ. Well, the Republicans want to do it a little differently. They want to you know, go through the national vaccine program, expand testing. They want to replenish the national strategic stockpile, $35 billion to provider relief fund, which reimburses hospitals and healthcare providers for corona-related expenses and revenue losses. That's an interesting one. So this is essentially a bailout for the healthcare system is what the Republicans want to do. Um, then there's nutrition assistance. I, this is really more about food stamps, but both both sides, both Biden and um, the Republicans want to continue this as well. And it's no surprise. So um, – the Republicans say they want to invest $12 billion into expanding and continuing food stamps. Uh, Biden didn't put a number on his plans. So I think we're going to learn a little bit more. So, again, people, people say that these Republicans oppose socialism, oppose redistribution of income, but they support it. And here again, I mean, under George Bush, I mean, food stamp funding went up. I mean, it was because – of the algorithm, right? It was when we went into the Great Recession and there were so many people that were in a crisis and were out of work and needed assistance, federal funding for food stamps went up under George W. Bush. And now the Republicans are proposing more of it. And you can make an argument, of course, that it's necessary now. But my point is, is that a, the Republicans are hypocrites because they say they oppose socialism, but they continue to provide socialism. And the other side of it is, is that the people that try to frame these two parties as, you know, um, as, you know, an angels and devils, as polar opposites are not paying attention to the facts. These two parties are very, very similar when you really look at the policies. But check this one out. And this one really surprised me. And I was looking at the small business assistance. Um, both want to spend about $50 billion on small business. And I'm a small business owner. So this caught my attention. Um, the president's plan calls for providing $15 billion to create a new grant program for small business separate from the existing Paycheck Protection Program. And so remember, it's $50 billion, So 15 to this special grant program and $35 billion investment, in quotes, in some state, local, tribal, and nonprofit financing programs that make low-interest loans. Okay, so putting money out there that can be borrowed at a low interest rate, that, that's good. I mean, at least it's being, it's being borrowed and paid back, ideally. Um, but get this, Biden wants to provide money to venture cap, as venture capital to entrepreneurs. That is something. Um, so now the federal government, and again, this is socialism, right? The federal government really buying shares, providing venture capital to small business, to entrepreneurs. Um, now the government wants to be involved as an angel investor. And we see some of this when government officials say they want to invest, like invest in the green technology comp uh, economy. Well, this is similar. Now, this is from the Democrats, so not that unexpected, but still, 
How, though, can the federal government do that? Think about it. I mean, it's the very definition of picking winners and losers. I mean, which entrepreneurs, which good ideas are going to get funding from the federal government? And then who decides? Who are the people that make the decision on who gets the money and who doesn't? I mean, at least with a lot of these stimulus programs, you know, we know that it's a function of how much you earn. So there is objective criteria that says you qualify or you don't qualify. But how are they going to objectively decide which companies to invest in, which companies to provide venture capital to entrepreneurs? I mean, this is something. Now, as a small business owner, I'm wondering, should I try to qualify for that money since they're handing it out? Um, I don't know. Um, I'm going to learn more about that. Um, Now, the GOP wants to funnel the $50 billion through the Paycheck Protection Program. And that program, of course, I think it's at least three quarters of that money that goes to these businesses through the Paycheck Protection Program is intended to protect paychecks, which means that money is, is meant to be spent on payroll. So, you know, mea culpa, full disclosure, um, I qualified for a paycheck protection program, um, you know, quote unquote loan. My understanding is, is that's forgivable, but I haven't been presented with the process yet to go through and qualify for that to be um, forgivable. So we're going to find out about that. I know there's another wave of PPP that's coming. This is probably another tranche of funding for it. But. It's interesting is some of these these uh, stimulus uh, initiatives, some are going to keep people that are working to keep them to continue to work. And then others are being provided to people that are completely out of work or or people that have such a low amount of work that they can't make ends meet. So different layers of the economy are being addressed. Um, But still, I mean, it's interesting that. The Paycheck Protection Program, the first round of it in the second quarter of 2020, there were a lot of companies that weren't small businesses. There were a lot of companies that were very, very profitable that qualified for Paycheck Protection Program, um, um, quote unquote, loans. And I know a lot of people were very angry. They saw this as companies, you know, playing the game and, um, you know, fraud potentially in the system. Well, now handing venture capital, potentially as much as $35 billion to um, venture capital to entrepreneurs. Again, I, I, I need to learn more about that because that one makes me uncomfortable because how are they going to decide and who's going to decide on who gets that money? Um, to me, that's a bridge that the government should never cross. Government should not be handing out money to these companies as venture capital. Government should not be taking an ownership position in these private companies. But that's definitely what's going to be pursued if the Biden plan passes. And you know, it's the majority of Biden's plan will pass because if they get all the Democrats to align themselves They'll be able to get the majority vote in the Senate, and they've already got the House. So you got to assume um, that the Biden plan is going to pass. Just like when you're in Vegas and you're playing blackjack, you got to assume that the dealer's got a face card underneath. Um, in this case, you got to assume that the Democrats are probably going to pass this unless something happens as a result. Okay, so um, 
School reopening is another category, and the president wants to provide $170 billion to K-12 schools, colleges, and universities, where the Republicans only want to provide $20 billion. So this one's a pretty big delta. Um, most of these other initiatives, the difference was subtle. In some cases, there was no difference in the dollar amount that the two parties wanted to pass out. This one's a big difference, but this is aligned really, really with the political constituencies, you know, the, the whole educational system is highly aligned with progressives, with leftists, with Democrats. Certainly teachers unions are highly aligned that way. They're saying that this money is going to go to provide um, to reopen and operate safely and to facilitate remote learning. But you know and I know that a lot of this money is going to go to salaries. You know and I know a lot of this money is going to be used for salary increases, because that's usually how this always goes down. Now, generally speaking, I know here at our local school district at Poway Unified, the their total funding to the school district, only a, roughly speaking, only about 10% of their total funding comes from the federal government. Um, but the federal government, Department of Education, in round figures, is around $100 billion a year right now. Right? That's my understanding. It might be you know, plus or minus 20 billion. Um, but this is 170 billion. Uh, so this is potentially 2.5 X, you know, or two, would that be 2.7 X um, of the uh, program? Um, I don't know, maybe. Um, so an interesting amount, a lot of money going to schools. I'm all for opening up schools and opening up safely, but then you got to really look carefully. Is some of this a boondoggle or is some of this is going to be for legit expenses, you know, to make online education more efficient, more productive, or is it going to, is it going to be used to build out infrastructure to make classrooms more safe? Great questions. And I look forward to learning more on that. Um, Childcare is another category. Uh, the president wants to provide $25 billion and, um, and and to provide more care for, you know, existing child care and development block grants and, and the like, where the Republicans uh, want to allocate $20 billion. So not that big of a difference, 25 versus 20. Mental health, they both want to put roughly equivalent dollars, about $4 billion. Both Biden and the GOP are proposing that. So, again— very similar. So this is all going to be negotiated soon. We're going to learn more about it. There's a few other things. They're saying that the Biden plan also wants to put $25 billion in rental assistance for low-income, moderate-income households, $5 billion for struggling renters that uh, can't pay their utility bills. Um, they want to extend the federal eviction moratorium. That's an interesting one. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how this is really playing out. I mean, if you're a landlord, how— how are you doing this? Because if if renters can go month after month after month and not pay their rent and also not suffer the consequences of being evicted, well, what is the landlord doing to pay the mortgage? And maybe the landlord's getting money through PPP or other programs. And let's assume for the sake of discussion that the landlord's okay. But I often wonder what's going to happen when this COVID crisis is over and this eviction moratorium is lifted and we go back to the regular process where people that don't pay rent can be asked to leave, demanded to leave. What's going to happen? Are, are they going to have to pay like six months, nine months, 12 months in arrears as well as their current rent payment? 
Because if they have to go backwards and pay for all those free months of rent, there's no way that's ever going to happen. So again, there's so many aspects of this economy. They're just built on a house of cards where there's all these bailouts and exceptions to the rule. And all of it is just being propped up. It's like a balloon that's going to pop. And so I often wonder what's going to happen as a result of that when this eviction moratorium is lifted. Are we going to see a surge of homelessness? Are we going to um, see another surge of, um, of, of evictions or maybe homes going into foreclosure? It's a very interesting topic. What else? Um, Biden wants to provide more money to the state and local government. So essentially a bailout for state and local government. Um, more money for transit agencies. So, I mean, we can go on down the list, but it's interesting. But I really want to get to this topic of the minimum wage. And this is always a really hot topic, right? Um, Minimum wage is something that, you know, the the Democrats have been fighting for a greater minimum wage for a long time. And and, and lately it's been the living wage, the fight for 15. Um, and now Biden, you know, made that a, a campaign promise. He wanted to have a $15 an hour national minimum wage, not counting what the federal and the city level, uh, I'm sorry, what the state level and the city level layers that are added to it, wanted a federal $15 an hour minimum wage. And, you know, we could debate the merits of the minimum wage, and I'm going to go through a little bit of that. But to me, this seems like, why are you doing it now? <laughs> because I, I can, I, I understand the arguments for $15 minimum wage. And, and, and I think those arguments and that debate, we can have that debate. But businesses right now are struggling. I mean, restaurants have been shut down and they're turned turn back on and turn off. Um, gymnasiums, hair salons. I mean, we can go down the list of small businesses that are in our local communities that are either out of business or are struggling to, you know, pay their rent. I mean, they're just barely getting by. And, you know, they might be able to get a little bit of more of a bailout here, maybe a little more PPP, but some of them have thrown in the towel. I commented about my barber that I use here in Poway, the a gentleman named Evel, who, you know, he young man in his 20s, he's an immigrant to the United States, but had that entrepreneurial spirit and started up his own, you know, barbershop. It was called Fresh Out the Barbershop. And he was getting jacked around by these rules, you know, open, but limited number of people and, and open, but had to limit his hours. And then he couldn't be open at all. And it was nuts. And he finally just said, screw it. And because he couldn't continue to operate his business. Imagine if these companies now that are struggling suddenly have to pay $15 an hour minimum wage. And now, granted, in California, the minimum wage, I think, is is it $13 an hour for some companies, $14 an hour for other companies, I think, depending on size. But once you bump it up to 15 not that big of a difference in California, but in other parts of the nation, they just go off the federal minimum wage, which I think is $7.25 an hour. So this is more than double. I mean, imagine your payroll more than doubling for some of these businesses that are already struggling to make ends meet. So Biden is trying to push this through, you know, get some of his uh, campaign promises fulfilled as part of this relief package. Um, This is the one element that maybe even some Democrats in D.C. might object to. They might say, hey, I, 
I got you, Biden, but not now, not as part of this package. Um, but I do want to kind of go through a little bit of this, the issue of minimum wage, because I think it's a, a really interesting topic. And, you know, I've spoken a little bit about minimum wage in the past and, um, you know, the issues that I have with it. I'm trying to go through my notes here. I thought I had printed out another article about it, but I can't find it. Is it in here? Come on. No, I guess I didn't print that one out, but that's okay. Um, so anyways, the, the minimum wage, the living wage of $15 an hour, people, the proponents of increasing the minimum wage, they say nobody who works 40 hours a week should live in poverty. Um, no one deserves to be earning a minimum wage, but not able to sustain themselves. So if you're going to have someone work, they should be able to to live on that salary and or to live on that hourly wage. So $15 an hour, 40 hours a week, that's 600 bucks a week. And, and you can do the math. That's probably what, about $31,000, $32,000 a year, assuming you're a full-time worker. And that I know is, depending on where you live, that's probably close to or above the poverty rate. Um, but does the minimum wage increase to $15 an hour makes sense? And does it make sense as a general concept? And also, does it make sense how it's rolled out? Because 15, let's be real, in, in some parts of the country, you know, the minimum wage is seven twenty-five, And increasing it to $15 an hour would be a huge boost to those workers. Sounds great. Um, obviously, a huge burden on those businesses. Now, some people say, well, if you can't pay your workers at least a living wage, then you don't deserve to be in business. Well, please, you know, businesses are trying to make, you know, they're trying to make money. They're trying to pay their employees fairly to the best of their ability. Some large corporations, maybe, you know, some people say large corporations are essentially getting corporate welfare because their workers are qualifying for welfare programs and food stamps, and they have to get those programs because they're on the minimum wage. But then, you know what? A lot of large companies like Amazon, they already pay their workers $15 an hour. That's the starting wage, regardless of where you are in the United States. And Amazon, by the way, gives you health care on day one. You don't even have to wait like a 90-day probation period. You get health care benefits on day one at Amazon. Um, and it's interesting, if you look at Jeff Bezos, he used to oppose the minimum wage um, for all of, you can imagine, sort of um, right-wing or conservative economic rationale. He opposed it. But did you notice that Bezos flipped and he suddenly became a supporter of the minimum wage? And it makes you wonder why. And my theory is, is that he always knew that he was going to get a lot of heat because, you know, when you're the top dog, people are coming after you. People complain about, you know, pay rates at Walmart and McDonald's and at Amazon because they're the leaders of their respective industries. So they're the ones that get heat. So from a PR perspective, he probably wants to shed some of that heat and he's willing to pay his workers $15 an hour. But more importantly, more strategically, and this is the part that I think people don't understand, is when, when he, Bezos is paying $15 an hour and he's demanding that there's a national minimum wage of $15 an hour, that means that Bezos's brick and mortar retail competitors are going to be burdened with that $15 an hour wage. Now, 
as Amazon, who is raking in the bucks, they have the resources to be able to cover that expense, but a lot of small businesses don't. So this becomes a, a strategy for Amazon to increase market share by putting more of his competitors out of business by supporting the minimum wage of $15 an hour because he knows that the mom and pop retailers are not going to be able to weather that storm. And then to add another interesting strategic twist is that Amazon is automating great portions of their business, automating it so they need less employees, making that strategic investment in R&D and technology and taking advantage of all the rightful tax credits and, and deductions to do so. But small companies also don't have those resources to do it. So now he'll have, on a proportional basis, less employees working at $15 an hour at a wage he can afford. Um, and over time, less and less proportionately as he automates more and more. And small business, small mom and pop, brick and mortar can't automate anywhere near to the degree, and they're going to have to pay for that human labor, that $15 an hour and more as the minimum wage keeps increasing. So a pretty savvy move by Bezos from both a PR perspective and a business perspective. But a lot of times people, they don't, they don't see it beyond that. And I think a lot of people think of the minimum wage and they say, well, the minimum wage, yeah, if a worker is making 10 bucks an hour and now they're making $15 an hour, that's a good thing, right? That worker's making more money and darn it, that worker deserves more money. That sounds good, but there's there's another side to this. And, and you hear people say that it's going to lead to less employment. And that's true. I mean, that's, that's econ 101. As the price of labor goes up, there's going to be less demand for labor. Um, people make the argument, well, if you increase the pay, then they're going to spend that money and that's going to go into the economy and the businesses are going to make more money and they'll be able to pay and fund their people making $15 an hour. Well, in a dream world, it would work that way. But how do you know where those people are going to spend their money? Um, so some companies are going to prosper and some companies are going to be burdened by this and they're going to end up going out of business or having to shed employees because that money is not coming back to them. Maybe that's a strategic flaw of the business, but at any rate, you don't you can't control that. So the, the idea that businesses are going to be are going to survive because customers are going to spend more, well, that's not a, a hard and fast rule. It'll depend. But more importantly, and I think this is critical, is with a minimum wage, you know, what's the like the labor force participation rate? I think is like what is that around sixty percent? So roughly, I think. Adults 18 to 65, I think about 60% of them are working, 40% aren't. Of the 40% that aren't, I mean, some people don't have to work. You know, maybe they're a stay-at-home parent or maybe they retired early or, you know, maybe they're a student. But there's a lot of other people that could be working but aren't for any variety of reasons. They could be um, injured or have a health condition or they could be a victim of this um, you know, COVID crisis. I mean, they could be out of work for any variety of reasons. But it's important to understand when you raise the minimum wage, when the minimum wage goes up, it makes it that much harder for a person that's not working to get a job. So, for example, assuming that, let's assume the minimum wage, just to make the math easy, is $10 an hour. And there are people that are out of work. 
and maybe they're trying to find work, but they can't get the job because they don't have the skills or this experience to earn to, you know, to generate enough value for their employer to justify $10 an hour. In some cases, that's true because a lot of a lot of these students coming out of these you know terrible government schools in certain parts of the country are not being educated properly and don't have basic mathematics skills and basic writing and reading skills. But then a lot of these are are young people that maybe don't have the experience or the track record to show up at work on time. You know, so there are a lot of people for any variety of reasons that are out of work and are trying to find work but don't can't provide enough value to the employer to justify that minimum wage. So when the minimum wage goes up using round numbers from $10 an hour to $15 an hour, it makes it even harder for those that are unemployed to get that first job. So increasing the minimum wage sounds great if you're working and you're on the low end and you're pay rate goes up. And that sounds wonderful for that worker. And you can make an argument. Some of those workers might be out of work, might be replaced with um, automation or might see their hours reduced. And I think that's going to happen. But even if you make the justification that all of them will remain fully employed, what about the workers that aren't working, that are trying to get that first gig, that want to get that start, get their toe in the water to begin building skills, gaining experience, getting a couple of jobs on their resume so they can start building a career. It's like a ladder with the first two or three rungs removed. It's harder to get started when the minimum wage keeps increasing. So um, Biden wants to put the minimum wage into this bill. And, you know, I I think it's... um, It sounds nice from a Democratic position, but I think this is the wrong time, friends, with this whole economic crisis that's going on. Um, What else? I mean, I can we can continue down the path of minimum wage. I know there are a lot of people that feel very strongly about it. Um, I wonder if that's one component of Biden's bill that's actually going to make it through. I mean, I think obviously the Republicans are going to oppose it. But are there enough sort of blue dog Democrats that will oppose it? I mean, even here in the state of California, when they uh, it was back when Jerry Brown was was the governor, Um, they he implemented or signed off on the $15 minimum wage. They didn't flip a light switch and implement it instantly. It was phased in over time. Um, And we're in the process of that phased period, because I think on January 1st, it went up another dollar to either 14 or $13 an hour, depending on the kind of company you work for. But even Democrats in California in a progressive state, even they understood that businesses can't handle it being aggressively changed um, and like instantly to $15 an hour because it would cause too much disruption in the economy. So imagine if you're a small business in one of these states where there is no additional layer of minimum wage, you're just paying the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour, and suddenly you're going to have to pay those workers double. Again, if you're one of those workers, good for you, but that business is going to be in a hell of a problem, and it's going to be difficult for them especially during the COVID crisis. Um, But as I was digging in on this, it was really interesting because I learned something about the minimum wage. And and I remember hearing about this before, but I really took the time to pay attention to it. And do you know that there is this thing called um, tip credits with the minimum wage? And Biden is part of his plan to increase the minimum wage 
from $7.25 to $15 an hour. He also wants to eliminate tip credits. So this is something that would directly affect the restaurant industry. And that means that he went to, the employers would have to pay every worker $15 an hour in, and plus their tips as appropriate. Even if they receive tips, everyone would get $15 an hour. But what's interesting is that in 43 states, employers can pay their workers as little as $2.13 an hour, as long as that hourly wage and tips add up to the locality's pay floor. Otherwise, the, the employer has to make up the difference. The tipped minimum wage was last increased in 1991. This is interesting. So, again, to make the math easy, let's assume that the the tipped minimum wage was five bucks an hour, um, and if a if a waiter or a waitress was getting tips and their their five dollar an hour plus their tips as a package met the minimum wage of $15 an hour then or more, then they were able to keep all of it. And the company, the business owner, the restaurant owner would only have to pay a minimum wage of $5 an hour. But if their tips were low and the effective hourly rate of $5 an hour plus tips maybe only added to $12 an hour effectively, then that business would have to kick in an additional $3 an hour to bring that worker up to the $15 an hour minimum. Um, it's an interesting, weird case here. And obviously the restaurant industry loves this. Um, but what's going to happen? One of the things they said is that in some of these restaurants, worker uh, workers in the back, like cooks, are making $15 an hour, $18 an hour. Now imagine a waiter or waitress making $15 an hour plus tips. I mean, they could be making at some of these high-end restaurants 40 bucks an hour. Well, good for them, you know, as a waiter or a waitress. You know, they're hustling. They're doing their work. But how can you have a waiter or a waitress making 40 bucks an hour and a cook only making 18 That doesn't make sense. So – if they implement this $15 an hour minimum wage and they eliminate this, eliminating the tip credits, it's going to create a lot of disruption in the restaurant industry. Now, it seems California has already kind of gone through some of that, but it's curious to see how this is going to work. And, um, you know, I went through the list and you can actually look look at every one of these states. And it's interesting is, um, yeah, some of these states um, actually have no minimum uh, tip credit. Some, it's just $7.25 an hour is the minimum, and there's no state level or federal level. Um, some have tip credits, some don't. So these rules are just kind of all over the place. Um, now, I did a whole podcast not too long ago about tipping. You know, how much do you tip? And I think this is always a great discussion topic. Um, when I was younger, I was, how should I say, the whole concept of tipping to me seemed unusual, irrational, bizarre. And I thought that, it, why are we having to tip people? Why not just have them work and get paid for their job? And why are some jobs tipped and other jobs not tipped? And there are some jobs that are in the middle that sort of get tipped sometimes, but not all the time. And the whole thing was just so confusing. And so I remember in the beginning, I was just kind of, I don't know, maybe I was just being a tightwad, but I didn't tip very well. As I've gotten older, I become far more generous with tipping especially since my children started working, you know, when they were in high school, they worked around the corner here at Rancho Bernardo at Mama Cella's Italian restaurant. And my daughter was a hostess 
and she would make money on the tips that were for the to-go orders. And I remember thinking, who tips for a to-go order? But a lot of people did, and a lot of people don't. And so her income could vary. And now suddenly, I, I now tip all the time on to-go orders. Um, and I'm so much more generous with tipping. I kind of get it now. And I know also with this COVID crisis, I'm generally a lot more generous trying to help people out because they're helping me out, you know, so it's win-win. But to me, the whole concept of tipping is really interesting. And I know, you know, back in the early 90s, I worked for a Japanese software company and we had a lot of our you know, coworkers came over from Tokyo and would visit um, our office in San Diego. And for them, it was more of a boondoggle, more of a vacation that was sponsored by the company. So good for them. But they were often confused about tipping and who gets it. You know, am I supposed to tip? I get, am I supposed to tip my waiter or waitress? I'm supposed to tip the taxi, but am I supposed to tip the maid that cleans up my hotel room and, you know, all these questions. I remember getting hit with a lot of those questions and, you know, I don't, a lot of the rules are sort of unwritten, you know, talking about Tatis to lead off this podcast episode, unwritten rules. To me, it's just still so confusing and so odd. But ultimately, I always think this is that if you really believe that we need to have a living wage of $15 an hour, why wait for the federal government or the state government to increase the minimum wage? Why wait? Just tip more. If that's what you believe, then tip more, be more aggressive, be more generous. That's what I do now. Um, so even like my buddy, um, Evel, who I talked about, who owned the barbershop here in Poway. Um, yeah, I would, you know, for a haircut, I would tip him at least a hundred percent, sometimes 200 percent, um, depending on the situation. Cause I knew he was struggling. I knew he needed help. Um, and a lot of other cases, yeah, I'll, I'll tip like restaurant bills. I remember I used to be really careful, 15%. I used to do the math. Now I just do 20 plus, um, sometimes 25, 33%. Um, and it's cool. And I kind of feel like it's win-win. So I really enjoy that. So um, this whole concept of minimum wage is really interesting. And, you know, Biden is, wants to increase the minimum wage. And, and, and But again, I, I just don't think this is the right time for it. I think um, as part of this economic relief through COVID, I mean, we can have a debate about that issue, but trying to squeeze in a $15 an hour minimum wage on businesses that are already barely alive um, that in some cases have been shut down, but still have to pay the rent, that still have to, you know, f- pay a lot of fixed fees on leases for equipment and a lot of other things. Those don't go away. So when these businesses are shut down or tie, have one arm tied behind their back as the government shutting them down and then demanding that when they open up, they increase their pay rate by double. I mean, that's all that's a big ask. And that's something that a lot of businesses are just not going to be able to do. And so then those people don't get a job and really isn't the best stimulus check of all a paycheck, you know, and and that's really what we should be striving for is figuring out ways to get people back to work, not encouraging or incentivizing companies to let go of more people. So at any rate. Let's move on. Okay, so it's, oh my God, it's 50 minutes we're into this. Um, I was rambling a long time on it. And I want to get in to a little bit about this marketing education about increasing sales leads. But 
there is no way I'm going to do this starting now because I won't be able to give it the time that it deserves. So I'm going to, again, hold this again, probably till Wednesday, and maybe I'll just kick off with that. But um, I want to help businesses. I mean, that's what I do. I I own a marketing agency. I I help my clients win and retain customers, increase their revenue. That's what I do. And um, especially for businesses that you know, they're, they depend on getting qualified sales leads into their, into their business, you know, so they can build custom proposals for those particular clients. Um, there's just been a lot of ways using sales funnels and email autoresponders and other lead generation techniques that I've used for my clients that have multiplied their inbound leads by over four times um, that have been extraordinarily successful. And I want to share a lot of that with you, but I'm not going to try to cram that in to about nine minutes because I really want to keep these podcasts to about an hour. So um, I'm still taking questions and comments. There haven't been as many today. Um, Last time when we did on Friday, someone shared our episode, our live stream on Wall Street Bets. And I was getting a lot of crazy stuff. I mean, some people are making really good points about GameStop and Robinhood and this whole battle against the hedge fund guys and sticking it to the to the rich. Um, but there were other people that were flooding my feed with like borderline, you know, obscenities. And I had to like delete people from the feed. It was it was wild, but it was fun. And I enjoyed that. So if you want to continue the conversation, seek me out on social media, um, on Facebook. I have the John Riley Project. You can get all the episodes there. And the John Riley Project Insiders group, where we have some you know, more intimate discussions. That's a closed group on Facebook. I let everyone in. Um, and I would encourage you to you know, check me out on Twitter. John Riley Poway is my handle there. Um, I've been actually doing some really interesting things on on my social media. I have a bunch of social media accounts. Um, These are just a few of them for my podcast and for me personally. But I have a number of different social media accounts for different segments of my business and different entrepreneurial efforts that I'm working on with electric vehicle charging stations and with – uh, you know, some of these, you know, I told you last episode about my Poway store that I started, PowayStore.com. And I've been actually doing automated social media posts and doing it in a really clever way. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that on Wednesday as well when we get into these sales funnels um, and generating more sales leads for your organization. Matthew Brannigan chimes in, oh, I wondered where all those folk came from. Yeah, that was the Friday episode. And I remember the person said they that was caught the live stream one of our regular v- viewers said that they shared the post um and it was a three letter acronym and i remember seeing it and not really paying attention to it cuz i'm trying to focus on the camera and not my computer monitor and um now looking back on that i think it was the the there was the episode the live stream was shared to wsb of course that's wall street bets that's the the Reddit group where all of this stuff got started. And so that's why the podcast was shared there. And there's like so much action in the wall street bets community. And that's why it blew up. And so I I look at my, you know, in YouTube, there's the YouTube studio, which is like the back end of it. And you can see all your analytics and my, my views and uh, minutes or hours watched has you know tailed off since the election um, has tailed off because I you know took a bit of a break in late December and most of January, 
But I'll tell you what, that episode on Friday, it was like this huge spike. It was like the GameStop stock price just went boom because of all those people that checked out the episode. So, yeah, we got the a little bit of the good, the bad, and the ugly that came with that, Matthew. So at any rate, um, yeah, I invite you to follow me on social media. I encourage you, if you really like what we're doing, to like the episodes, follow the episodes. That's always helpful. Uh, Pete Neal joined us. I spoke about you in the beginning, Pete, in the beginning of the podcast. We were uh, wondering what we were all doing for the weekend, and I was saying how you were watching Daytona. Um, but no worries. Happy that you joined us here. You came in a little bit late. Um, but here's my closing quote. And, um, you know, uh, I hadn't done a closing quote on my solo podcast lately, but I compelled to do one this time. And this is from Paul Krugman. Now, I don't know who, if you know who Paul Krugman is. I'll tee it up this way. Paul Krugman is um, an economist. He is a columnist for the New York Times, and he won a Nobel Prize. Was it in economics or was it in something else? So he's generally a very well-regarded, well-respected person, especially if you're a progressive, if you're a leftist, if you're a Democrat, you generally really like Paul Krugman. And he has, over the years, become more and more progressive, more and more liberal um, and embracing the socialist democratic agenda. But sometimes people's quotes from long ago can be creep can creep up. And sometimes there's just so spot on. And this is a quote from Paul Krugman in 1998. Okay, so this is in the dot com boom, and we're doing great. And that's like, holy moly, 23 years ago. Um, And he said, So what are the effects of increasing minimum wages? Any Econ 101 student can tell you the answer. The higher wage reduces the quantity of labor demanded and hence leads to unemployment. So there it is. So even Paul Krugman at least used to understand that increasing the price of something is going to have lower demand. I mean, most most everyone understands that, right? As you increase price, people are going to buy less of it. That's why they apply sin taxes to alcohol and cigarettes. And, and you know, if, if you're in New York City, when Michael Bloomberg's mayor, you know, they're ask, adding sin taxes onto soda. Um, sin taxes are increased not only to generate income to help pay for government programs, but also to decrease the amount of those products that are purchased to disincentivize that purchase. So even Paul Krugman gets it. So anyways, um, all right, we're like at 57 minutes. So this is a great time to wrap up. But thanks again for joining us. Uh, This is the John Riley Project, episode number 197. So we're going to be at 200 here in a little bit. And uh, Matthew Brannigan says, I hope some of them stick around. I think hopefully some of them do. Um, Love having them on board. And love having conversations here with our podcast listeners and viewers. And so thank you, Pat and, and Matt and, and and Pete for you know sharing your comments and thoughts on this. And yeah, and hopefully some of them that were here on Friday will subscribe and be a part of the community too. So wish you all well. Um, this is Super Bowl week. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about the Super Bowl. I know Pat Johnson's a big Tom Brady fan. And uh, um, we'll talk a little bit about the Super Bowl maybe on Wednesday and Friday. So until then, friends, Have fun, be safe out there, and we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.